0: So starting at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I will return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I've set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give you a tenth.
1: John chapter 1. Verses 43 to 51. And it, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? "'Can anything good come from there?' Nathanael asked. "'Come and see,' said Philip. "'When Jesus saw that Nathanael pr- approaching, he said of him, "'Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. "'How do you know me?' Nathanael asked. "'Jesus answered, "'I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you.' "'Then Nathanael declared, "'Rabbi, you're the Son of God.' You are the king of Israel, Jesus said. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that, he added. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man.
2: Thanks, Sarah, and thanks, Sarge. I'm going to lead us in a prayer before we look at this portion of God's word. Let's pray. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Father, thank you that you are present with us this afternoon, and you see us right where we sit. You see me where I stand. And you know what bubbles along the current of our heart. You know the firm convictions we have. You know the doubts that stir within. You know the skepticism that can uh, lead us. Thank you, Lord, for this encounter that Nathaniel had with Jesus, and pray that through it you would meet us afresh in a powerful, living way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you were to place yourself on the spectrum between being gullible on the one end of the spectrum and being highly skeptical by disposition at the other end of the spectrum... Where would you place yourself along that line? I wonder, where would you guess that I'm placed? Do you think I'm more to the gullible side? Oh, <laughs> some, some are strongly nodding, yes. And, or so, do you think I'm more to the skeptical side? Well, those who nodded yes are absolutely right. Uh, people can send me down the creek with barely any effort at all, uh, and I'll, I'll be going with them and saying yes. Of course, oh, that's horrible, and then they'll, they'll be telling me that they're joking. I, I do tend to be more towards the skeptic or the the gullible side of things. But here in today's passage, we meet someone who was on the other end of the spectrum. Nathaniel is skeptical by disposition, it seems. Now, what does it mean to be skeptical? I've got a uh, definition that I'd like to throw up on the screen. This is from the Oxford Concise English Dictionary. Uh, Skeptical. It's an adjective uh, in the U.S. spelled differently. Inclined to question the truth or soundness of accepted ideas or facts. Critical or even incredulous, which means someone who almost refuses to believe. That's what incredulous means. So inclined to question the truth or soundness of accepted ideas or facts. And here Philip comes to Nathaniel convinced of something. He has an established idea which he thinks is a fact about Jesus. And yet when Nathaniel hears Philip's testimony, Nathaniel is instinctively skeptical and the story that we are engaging, this true story from Jesus' ministry, is the story of Nathaniel moving from uh, a legitimate skepticism, I think, to a, a reasoned personal faith in Jesus Christ. And we see him move uh, across that uh, a journey to faith in a wonderful way. Now, before we engage his story... I just wanted you to see that uh, through the recent uh, centuries of Christian faith, there have been many who have taken this journey from being skeptical in the, in the claims of Jesus Christ to actually having a, a personal, intelligent faith in him. I could share many names, but here's, here are just a few before I focus on two. Anthony Flew was a great British philosopher who wrote a famous article in the middle of the 20th century that really made the case that it was unreasonable to be a Christian or to believe in any any god, to be a theist, really. But then, later on in his uh, his philosophical life, he came to be convinced of the claims of the Christian uh, faith and, and, and wrote uh, a book near the end of his life about how one of the most famous atheists became a Christian. I could tell you about Anthony Flew, the British philosopher. Or Francis Collins, who is an, Ameri- who is, who is an American geneticist, and who thought initially that his scientific disposition meant that he couldn't reasonably be a person of faith in- until he studied more into the human genome. And as he studied it, discovered that he really couldn't explain what he was seeing apart from appealing to a creator, and then examined a series of faiths until he became most convinced of the Christian faith. I could tell you of Francis Collins, the uh, American geneticist, but I want to tell you a bit about Alistair McGrath, an Irishman, an atheist, who came here to the University of Oxford to, to uh, study in molecular biophysics and ended up getting his doctorate in that field, but over the time moved from being a convinced atheist to walking a path to Christian faith. So much so that now, if I were to put all the books that Alistair McGrath has written to commend the Christian faith and to put them in a circle, I'm sure it would come above one level on this glass table. Let me tell you also of Rebecca McLaughlin, who grew up in a strong Christian home, but found herself to have same-sex attraction, not something that she uh, she invited upon herself, but nonetheless found arising within her heart. And she really wrestled as a young person into her young adult years, coming to study uh, uh, at the University of Cambridge, and r- was wrestling with how her same-sex attraction could come to cohere with the Christian faith of her youth, and had a period of exploring and not figuring out how those two could go together and being skeptical of the faith that she was raised in. Uh, Rebecca now is married to a man and holds a traditional view of uh, sex as being a gift from God for the marriage between a man and a woman. And that's the story of Rebecca's journey uh, from skepticism to faith, and I erase her in part, so that if you find yourself answering tough questions about Christianity, boy, would I ever encourage you to take up her book, which is available uh, here in church, uh, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. Do pick that up if you're interested in exploring more. But here, we encounter maybe the first of those who made this journey from skepticism to personal faith in Christ. Maybe he's the forerunner of these two I've shown up on the screen and there's others I've mentioned. Maybe Nathaniel was the very first to take this walk. And you, as we encounter his story, might have in mind people in your life who are skeptical in their disposition. And you share your warm claims uh, and, and, and what your personal faith in Jesus means to you. And you find it go cold on them. And they might, they might bring an intellectual objection uh, that, that sets you back and you don't quite know how to answer. What do we do with our skeptic? That person in our life whom we love, who, who's skeptical of the faith that we share with them. What do you do with your skeptic? And what do you do with your skepticism? You might be here this afternoon, and you may call yourself a Christian, or you may not yet identify yourself as a Christian, and either the Christian or the non-Christian can wrestle with real doubts about the claims of the Christian faith. So not only what do you do with the skeptic in your life, but what do you do with the skepticism in you? And where do you take that? Well, as we explore this story of Nathanael's encounter with Jesus, we first of all get a real rock-solid hope, and that's that Jesus sees to the heart of your skeptic. Jesus sees, first of all, to the heart of your skeptic. I'd like you to read with me, again, verses 46 through 49. Philip has chosen to follow Jesus, and he now goes uh, to one of his friends, I presume, Nathaniel. And he says to him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then we pick the story up in verse 46. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. And when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you, yet while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You see, as as we think about our love for our skeptic, and as we think about our own skepticism within our hearts, what a comfort to know that Jesus sees to the very heart of our skeptic. uh, Nathaniel uh, hears from Philip that uh, they found the one of whom the Moses and the prophets have spoken about. That's a way of referring to the whole of the Old Testament. We found the Messiah, and he's called Jesus, of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Philip, uh, after the words Nazareth roll off his tongue, Philip sees this reaction in Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, can anything good come from Nazareth? I guess Nazareth was, Nazareth was a small, out-of-the-way town. Maybe between 1,600 and 2,000 lived there. It, it was within Galilee. And so people like this in Judea would have looked upon that town and thought, whew, that, there's, there's no profit that's going to come from there. I did a Google search as to the most uh, undesirable places to live in the United Kingdom and it's a dangerous search to make, and I found many of my beloved places that I have visited, like Luton on the list, for example. I mean, who doesn't love going to Luton? But apparently Luton, Luton's up there, uh, Liverpool was, was on the list, and Julia and I, we've been to Liverpool with the family on holiday. We love, we love Liverpool, but I'm not sure what, uh, what town you would associate with, but oh, do I ever not want to go there? But When Nathaniel heard Nazareth, he thought that and had that reaction. And so he's got an intellectual objection to the idea that the Messiah can come from Nazareth. We know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but he comes to spend a great part of his life in Nazareth. I guess with his dad, Joseph, as a carpenter. And uh, we just can't see how it could be possible that a prophet sent of God could be from there. But Philip doesn't uh, um, kind of dismiss the intellectual objection. He doesn't even, we, see, we think, really seek to engage with it, although that's a very good thing to do. But he just says, come and see. And he invites Nathaniel to come and meet Jesus. He knows that wherever Nathanael's at, if Philip invites uh, Nathaniel to Jesus, Jesus will see right to the heart of the skeptic in his life, and that's what happened. When Jesus sees Nathaniel approaching, he says to him, here's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He sees right to Nathaniel's heart, and he sees that in Nathaniel's objection, it doesn't come from a desire to turn away from the truth. Nathanael's version of, of, his, of skepticism is one that arises from a real intellectual honesty, You see, there's two kinds of skepticism, at least. There's an honest skepticism that really wants to know the truth wherever it can be found, and just is hesitant to adopt belief too quickly. That's an honest kind of skepticism. But then there's more of a dishonest kind of skepticism, where be presented with the truth in as compelling a way as you might like. Nonetheless, you you resist accepting the truth, because you don't want to actually encounter it. There's a dishonest skepticism, and there's an honest skepticism. And if you find yourself in that dishonest place, where even if you were presented with very compelling evidence uh, to, the, to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you would still resist because you know the implications it would have for your life. Well, there's an invitation there if you find yourself in that dishonest space, To not be afraid to come at least into an honest skepticism where you're open to finding the truth if you're presented to it. Because it seems that what's on offer is such a beautiful invitation to life and joy and uh, finding who you're made to be under God if you move from that dishonest skepticism to that honest skepticism. But it seems Nathaniel comes with that honest skepticism. There's no deceit in him. He really is looking for the truth. He sat under that fig tree, uh, a little bit of a symbol maybe for Israel. And he's a true Israelite in that he really, really wants the Messiah. He's just a bit skeptical that Philip has found him. But when Jesus sees him, he sees right to the heart of that skeptic. And he, he, he says to him, look, I know you. I know who you are, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel declared, how is it you know me? And then he reveals something to Nathanael. I saw you under the fig tree before Philip even came. In Nathanael's case, Jesus deals with the skeptical heart by a supernatural revelation of something that Jesus couldn't know unless Jesus is who he says he is. That's how Jesus chose to deal with Nathanael. How he'll deal with the skeptic in your life and mine might be a different story. It might not come through that supernatural revelation, But it might come through a different way. Either way, we know that Jesus sees to the heart of our skeptic. And so then, secondly, we can invite them to come and see Jesus, as Philip does. We can invite them to come and see Jesus. Imagine how it would have felt for Philip to have become so convinced of who Jesus was that when Jesus said, follow me, we're told earlier in the passage that Philip just responded and followed after Jesus and began to apprentice his life to this man. And then to know Nathaniel and to have love for Nathaniel and to come and share what he'd seen with Nathaniel, only to have Nathaniel rebuff him and turn a cold shoulder to to Philip's claim. Imagine how that would have felt How does it feel for you if you've got a warm, true faith in Christ and you know the difference it's made in your own life and you try and share that with the skeptic in your life and they raise their concerns and you might not know what to do with the intellectual objections that they bring and it can lead to such a disappointment and despair Because we really love Jesus and we really love our skeptic and we want to see the two connected and yet there's this block and we don't know what to do. Well, if Jesus sees to the heart of our skeptic, if it's ultimately up to him to convince them and not us, then we're free just to say, come and see. Come and see the Jesus I've met. Now, how do you do that when Jesus has now ascended into heaven? Well, before Jesus ascended into heaven, He said, I'm going to send you a comforter who will lead you into all truth, the Holy Spirit. And he'll guide you, and he'll be the one who convicts about the truth about me, Jesus said. And sure enough, after Jesus died and rose up from the grave and ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out on those who believed in him. So now we've been made by the Holy Spirit into Jesus's body almost. He's the head, and we who are Christians are the body who are meant to be living out his life in the world with his power and his strength. And so how do people invite the skeptic to come and see Jesus today? Well, how you do that? As you invite the skeptic into the presence of that body of his church, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. That might mean that you invite them to say, hey, come and see, would you like to study in the Gospels with me the life of Jesus one-to-one? And I'll meet with you and we'll study and let's see where we get to. Let's look at him together. It might mean that you, uh, you work with your fellowship group to put on a social and you invite your skeptic into uh, the, the uh, feeling of Christian community in a more relaxed way, through a barbecue. Invite them in. Let them experience the love that you have as Christians and look in on the Christian faith in a way that doesn't feel high stakes for them. You, of course, could invite them to an invitation service if you want. But the purpose is to invite them to come and see Jesus. Invite them into the sphere of the influence of God's people so that while they're there, the word of God hopefully will be opened and they'll be pointed to Jesus. And the Jesus who sees the heart of your skeptic can then put his finger on their heart just like he put his finger on the heart of Nathanael. Recently, I had the chance to uh, graduate from a course that I was doing at one of, the, one of the two great universities in the city, and when I had the graduation, I got to invite family and friends to come, and my dad came. My dad is such a good man, a very good uh, businessman in, in Vancouver. He's into construction and uh, has a lot of influence and power in the job that he has, but interestingly, my dad, when he was here, and he heard me preach on Psalm 51 uh, while uh, it was my graduation weekend... And my dad then came to a, a social after the service at our house and was talking to some others about his experiences of the service. And he said, uh, whenever I hear Andy preach, it's like he's speaking right to me, you know. <laughs> and he almost, he almost felt a bit pressed back. Now, I was doing everything that I could to try and not uh, speak to him because I didn't want him feel, to feel singled out at all. But when, when I brought my dad, who, who would say there is a God, but he's, he, he is skeptical about the claims of the Christian faith, but he sees the difference it's made in my life and Julie's life, the lives of our children. And so he has this skepticism. And yet, when, when I invited him to come and see, and he came to church wonderfully, uh, Jesus put his finger on the heart of my dad, the skeptic. And he just felt like he was being spoken right to by God. Not by me, but by God. And a burden of guilt that he... He's just like, Andy, I don't know if I can, I believe this message about free forgiveness. I just, I feel so guilty and I don't believe it can be that simple. And it led to a further conversation. You see, Jesus sees to the heart of your skeptic. So invite them to come and see Jesus. And then finally, and bring your own skepticism to him as well. Bring your own skepticism to him as well. But Andrew, if I'm a skeptic, or if I at least have big doubts, big questions, and they're about Jesus, why on earth would I bring my skepticism to Jesus, you might say? I mean, he's the very one that I'm questioning. So why on earth would I bring my skepticism to him? Well, Jesus is a bit of a unique case, let's just say. Because if he is who he says he is you won't find your way without him. If he is who he says he is, you won't find your way without him. Did you notice some of the things that Jesus was called in this encounter of Nathaniel with him? He's called the one who was written about by Moses, maybe referring to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses assured that a great prophet would come uh, and that we're supposed to listen to his words. He's the one whom the prophets spoke about, maybe the suffering servant who the great prophet Isaiah spoke about. He's the one written about in the Old Testament. And yet he's also the son of Joseph. In other words, he's become fully human. And as we read the other Gospels, we realize that that wasn't through Joseph's involvement as an immediate father, but while he was betrothed to Mary the Virgin, she was found to be with child. And so Joseph is his father in a different way. Yet Jesus is so completely human. He's the son of Joseph. He's a rabbi. He's the one to whom you can not only listen to his teachings, but you can commit your whole life toward following him. He's a rabbi, Nathaniel calls him that. He's the son of God. He's the king of Israel. And maybe this is a reference to Psalm 2. Which speaks about the Son of God the Father who will also be a human being and be king and have a kingdom that never ends. So though fully human, he's the Son of God. He's fully divine and his origin is ultimately divine. He never ultimately had a beginning and never has an end. He's the Son of God who's become the King of Israel. And he's the one upon whom angels ascend and descend A reference to that passage in Genesis 28 that we saw, where where Jacob's ladder uh, is, is spoken about. And Jacob has a vision in Bethel while he's sleeping, of angels ascending and descending while he's in this place. And he wakes up and recognizes this is the very place of God and sets up a stone pillar and anoints it with oil. In other words, Jesus says, I am the place where you meet with God now. I am the highway upon which God's blessings flow from him to you. I am Jacob's ladder where you will see God's glory on earth. So if this is who Jesus is, then you want to bring even your own skepticism to him. Because he's the one, ultimately, who gives light to your understanding. He not just tells the truth, he is the truth. And so how could we find the truth without first coming to him with our questions and saying, my goodness, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, you have to show me the way to pray that if prayer, if you are who you say you are, Jesus, you're the only one who can show me the way. Show me. To do otherwise is a bit like looking for light by turning our backs to the sun. Imagine how silly that would be if the sun is broken out in the sky and revealed itself to us, to then kind of turn our, our backs to it and cover our eyes and try and light a candle within the shadow cast by our turning away from the blazing sun. Instead, we want to turn away, turn, turn away from that approach and turn to the sun and say, if you are who you say you are, why bring my doubts and my questions to you? Help me through them. So what do we do with our skeptic? Well, we take heart that Jesus knows the heart of our skeptic. We invite them to come and see Jesus. And we bring our own skepticism fully to him. And that means as a church, we want to be a church that's really open to people's questions. We don't want to be a church where people feel, man, if I raise this, people are going to shut me down. We want to have a church culture, and I think we do where if people have their concerns and they have questions and they don't agree, man, they're still welcome to belong here even before they believe, right? Because we trust that Jesus sees to the heart of those folks. And we're trying to invite them to come and see Jesus. We're bringing our own doubts to him. So of course we're going to partner with people who are doubting and asking tough questions we might not know how to answer. Of course they're welcome to ask those questions in our midst. Jesus wants to meet with them. So why don't we pray uh, before we respond in song together. Would you pray with me? Father, now we bring to mind before you our skeptic, the person in our life who we would love to embrace you as we, we have, and yet they're still resisting We pray, God, that you would open their hearts to you as you opened Nathaniel's heart. We pray you would give us chances to invite them to come and see. We pray, Father, that you would help us with our own skepticism, our own doubts, that we wouldn't be afraid of those questions that we have, but instead that we'd have the courage to bring them to you, knowing that you you could meet with us over those very questions and help us to grow. Bring around us, Lord, allies in our faith and make us more and more a church that welcomes the skeptic and welcomes uh, the doubts and questions, confident that the Bible points to Jesus Christ and that he is indeed the Son of God, the King of Israel, the light of the world, the truth. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.